Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackey might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises, said, The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so. Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit MackeyAdvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y Advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more. My guest today is Jason Freed. Jason is the CEO and co-founder of 37 Signals, makers of software you may be familiar with or use, including Basecamp for project management or Hay for email. Jason is also an impactful thought leader co-author of books like Rework, Remote, and It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Welcome, Jason. How are you, Paul? Doing great. It's uh, so nice to have you. I've been really anxious to talk to you and and kind of dig into your story. Uh, many of us have heard of uh, 37 Signals, not only for your products, but for the stand that you and your company take in the industry about the nature of work. And, and you guys have been very genuine and, and transparent about uh, the challenges and opportunities in operating your company. But talk a little bit about 37 Signals today, you know, where you guys are. Uh, it sounds like you're doing really well, growing uh, upwards of 80 people in the company. But what are you guys focused on today? Yeah, so we have we have two primary products. We have Basecamp, which is the project management tool, and then Hey, which is our email service. Um, and so we're just continuing to improve both of those in significant ways every six or so weeks. Um, and then we're working on a couple of actual new things, new products, which I can't really talk about yet. One of them is related to hay and one of them is totally different. So we've got some established things going and some new things going and we're writing a lot. Again, we sort of took a break from writing for a while, uh, writing a bunch and just enjoying work. Frankly, um, there was uh, a period of time, you know, during COVID where it wasn't so pleasant for a while. And uh, we're back to a place where we're really uh, happy to be here. When you guys look at, at differentiating yourselves and obviously you've grown the business successfully with these two primary products, um, and a lot of that differentiation is in the writing and the thought leadership aspect, how do you go about, you say you upgrade the, the, the products every six weeks, but from a pure software product standpoint, how do you stand out of the crowd for people that do similar things? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there there are lots of things that exist uh, to to do the kinds of things that we we do, our products do, and it's not even just 
other products. It's just process. I mean, you can do a lot of the things our products do via email and via phone and via in-person meetings. So you're always competing with a bunch of different ways of working. Um, I think that you know our products come with a point of view. Um, if, if you use Basecamp or you use something like Asana or ClickUp or uh, Monday or some, you'll see there's a very different point of view. Our, our point of view is to do simple things simply, uh, not make things into big deals that aren't. Uh, make really simple workflows that are considered and thoughtful specifically for small teams. So a lot of the other tools in the market and business and products on the market, business software in the market is really tailored for larger groups. In fact, sales teams are all about, I mean, th- these companies have sales teams that are trying to sell 10,000 seats, you know, into a company. Like, I don't care about companies that big. Our, our primary audience is, you know, a company with fewer than 20 people. And so our yeah. tools are built around what it means for a small team to work together. And it's not about how to make 180 people efficient, but about, you know, how to make eight people efficient. And so you can really see that when you use the different products. I remember that in, in my company, when we'd be looking at things like project management or sales automation, I mean, these things, these products were so robust and complex and, and, and you'd use like 3% of what was available to you because that's really all you needed. And you didn't even know what you needed. So you're making it simple um, and you know who your customer is. That seems to make a lot of sense. That's the key is, is and recognizing that there will be some companies that have hundreds of people who want to use Basecamp, but it's not really built for them. It's really built for the small team, the small company, the, the underdog, the companies that are battling the bigger companies that want to move quickly, don't want to be sort of trampled by process and complexity in their products. And they're looking for something that's sort of the right size for them. I mean, the way I tend to think about it is like, if you wore a size medium shirt, you wouldn't put on an XL. Like you, that doesn't fit. But people try to use XL-sized software when they're a small team, and it doesn't fit either. So we're trying to make the right size product for the right type of customer. Unless you're my teenage daughter who will wear an XL <laughs> shirt, yeah, uh, but doesn't really need it. Right. Uh, that's just that's just the look. Yeah. Um, so at some point. Along the way, building and developing these products to stand out in the marketplace, you decided to use your voice. Uh, You decided to write. You guys went out there ultimately writing books and articles and, and really taking a stand. When did that come about and why did you step out that way? It wasn't sort of an intentional decision. It was just what we have always sort of done. Back in, uh, 99 when we started the business there was just three of us or four of us actually and um we talked about stuff we actually were in an office most of the time and we just talked about the industry and talked about our point of view and talked amongst the four of us and we just kept wondering why are we just talking amongst the four of us why not just publish this stuff publicly it's probably interesting to other people if it's interesting to us and that's all we did. And back then we had no audience and we, no one knew who we were. So you just kind of publish stuff and who knows if anyone's going to see it. Maybe there's 12 people who read it, but it wasn't about counting the number of people who were reading it. It's like, we're saying it anyway, let's just say it out loud. And that began this sort of process in this tradition of sharing everything that we basically talk about internally and have points of view on internally to share it externally. And it turned out that it was a really good marketing uh, strategy. It wasn't again, an intentional marketing strategy, but it's it's hard to uh, uh, it's hard not to be noticed. I think when you have something interesting to say, so we've always had a really strong point of view and a unique point of view. And I've always appreciated um, the the approach of trying to out teach the competition versus outspend the competition or out feature the competition or out 
grow the competition. You can out-teach. And when you teach someone something without asking for anything back, there's a different level of trust and respect that's built uh, among that kind of audience who's listening to you for something you're, you're saying that's, that's useful for them versus if you're just trying to sell them all the time. It's not a very trustworthy uh, relationship. It's more of a, a commercial one. So we've always shared everything we, we've written. The last thing I'll say about this is I've always been inspired by, by chefs who write cookbooks. So you've got a chef, you've got a, I don't know, some chef who runs a restaurant and they write a cookbook and they include all the recipes. It's like, this is the secret sauce, right? Like they're telling you how to make their food, but they're not afraid someone's going to take that cookbook and open up a restaurant next to theirs and put them out of business. Like they just want more people to know about their food. And so we kind of share our cookbook, our books and our thoughts are our cookbook, our recipes, essentially, not being afraid that people are going to use it against us. But in fact, they'll be able to use it themselves and, and benefit themselves. And I think that's always a worthwhile endeavor. I think it is, although I, I remember a few years ago being outspoken um, about some of these topics um, actually impacted your own company in, in, in a not so positive way. Or let's say there was an inflection point around the, the, this transparent culture that you built. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So a few years ago, um, we had decided, you know, so let's 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 put it into uh, the timeline here. COVID was happening. This is 2020. Um, there was a bunch of uh, cultural uh, things going on in the U.S., uh, a lot of political issues in the U.S., a lot of sort of tribalism and the whole thing. And and it sort of boiled its way into, into our business and at work. Um, a lot of talk about politics, a lot of talk about things that were just far outside of the work that we were all trying to do together. And we decided after, it's actually a couple of years where this was getting particularly bad, but then it kind of came to a head. And, and David, who's my business partner, and I decided that we have to put our foot down and say, look, um, we're not going to be talking politics at work anymore. Um, politics it sort of began to color every conversation at work, every meaningful conversation, and it just started getting in the way. And people then weren't giving each other the benefit of the doubt anymore. They were wondering which side somebody was on. It was just not the kind of environment that we thought was the kind of environment that we wanted at our company. And one of the nice things about being an independent company, uh, a private, small, independent company, is you can make these choices and you can put your cards on the table and say, this is what we believe and this is what we think. So we put our foot down and said, no more politics at work. Um, we're just going to focus on the work. And it was quite controversial. We, we thought, we knew it would be controversial, but we didn't know it would be this controversial. I mean, it was all over the press. In the end, about 30% of the company left. They quit uh, over this. So it was a really big deal. Um, and it was a painful time. For, I think a good six to eight weeks of it was pretty scary, frankly. It felt like an existential risk for a moment, but um, we still believe it was the right decision. We sort of gathered ourselves up, hired a bunch of new people, and there's a real wonderful energy in the company today that hadn't been there for a long time. And uh, we're all focused on just doing great work now and and focused on the work itself. And but anyway, it was a you know we 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 made the 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 point though is we made this announcement publicly as well. So we we talked about this internally and we made it public to our transparent thing that we're talking about here. This yeah. wasn't a quiet thing inside. It was a very public thing. And that's sort of, you know, you, you have to sort of live and die by the sword there. And that's what we were going to do. And, and we did that. And it was an interesting experience and uh, a harrowing one, but uh, worthwhile. <laughs> Better for it. Yeah. Um, but you did it the right way. Like you said, you shared it at, in, externally, just like you do everything else. So you stuck to your guns. Uh, that's wonderful. Jason, I want to take you back a little bit because I, uh, I want to understand where all this energy um, and passion 
for not this just business, but life comes from for you. Um, and the the success that has resulted from all of that passion. But tell me a little bit about growing up, you know, where did you grow up? Tell me about your folks, any any influences early on that that uh, touched upon this kind of leadership sensibility that you have? Yeah, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a suburb called Deerfield, which is a, on the North Shore, um, for those who know the area. Um, and you know, from early on, I'm his only child, so I kind of did my own thing for the most part. But um, my parents forced me, basically, I'll use the word forced, not in a <laughs> physical way, but like, hey, when you're 13, you can get a work permit, you got to go to work. Um, so I was going to camp before that. But the moment I could work, my parents wanted me to work, they wanted me to earn my own living. Of course, you're not really earning your own living at 13. But they wanted me to get used to that, to 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 appreciate the value of work, um, of what it takes to make a dollar. And the kind of effort you have to put in. And so, um, you know, I got a couple, I got a job at a grocery store, then I got a job at a shoe store, and I did some other things. Um, and it was in those experiences where I began to see, I didn't really know it at the time, but I began to see different kinds of management styles. Um, there was this one company I worked for, uh, the shoe store, where the owner was really hard to work for. It was this family owned business, and it was a husband and wife team who ran it, and they, were sticklers for everything. They would look over your shoulder. They didn't trust their 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 crew, their staff. They thought you were stealing from them all the time. It was just a really bad environment. And I kind of felt that and it didn't feel good to be there. But I had a manager there who was really trusting and sort of shielded us from all that stuff coming from down above and really gave us a lot of freedom and flexibility and believed in us as, as kids to, to do a great job. Um, and so I, I got to see that the environment and who's sort of above you and around you has a huge impact on what you're able to do and how you feel about the work itself. I loved selling shoes. I was like a sneakerhead. I was totally into it, but I didn't like doing it for the owners of the company because they were mean, but I loved doing it for my manager who was a great guy. You know, it's this really interesting thing. So that kind of stuff began to, and I had a few other jobs where it was similar or it started to sort of, I guess, influence me quietly. Um, but I've always you know, and then I started getting into software. I started making my own software because my neighbor got this computer and I saw it for the, it was a Mac. I saw it for the first time and it blew me away. I'd always loved design because my dad, who was in finance, um, would bring home these annual reports, which used to be printed way back in the day. And I loved them. They were glossy. They had beautiful charts and graphs in them and photo photography and good typography. And that sort of sparked my interest in design. Uh, my mom was a real estate agent, so I'd walk through houses with her, and that kind of got me into furniture and design, spaces, and all this stuff that I think you know really colored my uh, my experience. And, and eventually, um, I realized that like I could do some of the stuff for myself, and so I started messing around and picking up some skills on the computer and and kind of self taught myself how to make software and how to design things, and uh, it sort of went from there. And at what point did you? uh really go off on your own did you do this kind of coding or programming work for other companies and and ultimately break off and and start 37 signals yeah so i in like high school i made some software for myself to organize my music collection i had a bunch of tapes and cds and stuff and i would give them out to friends and i'd never get them back and i forgot who i loaned stuff to and so i'm like i need to make a little database -y thing to like keep track of my music collection so i made this thing and I, I had this, this feeling that like, gosh, if I like this thing, I'm sure other people would like this thing. 
And so I put it up on AOL. This is pre-internet. I put up on AOL <laughs> and I said, if you like this thing, there's like a little text file with it. If you like this thing, like send me 20 bucks in the mail, you know, to my home address. And so um, I got started getting checks in the mail for 20 bucks. And it was the first time I realized that I could make something for myself, solve my own problems. And I'm likely solving automatically a bunch of other people's problems too. And so I didn't go off my own then I was still in high school, but it was a, it was my first dose of like, wow, I can make something out of this. Um, then I went to college. I did more of that. After college, I, I majored in, in finance. I went to university of Arizona, primarily for the weather, to be honest, I wasn't a great student. Mm -hmm. I just kind of, you know, I got in and it was, you know, Arizona's cool and did that. Um, but after what I was, while I was at school there, I met this guy who I was doing some freelance work for. He lived in San Diego and after after school, he offered me a job as a web designer for his company. So I moved up to San Diego for a while, for a few months, realized that like I like web design, but I didn't like to work for him. And so mm -hmm. I moved back to Chicago, uh, got an apartment, and then had start started freelancing. And that was sort of that was in um, what uh, two thousand ish, uh, and that's or no, I'm sorry, uh, sorry ninety six. So when I moved back, 96, I went to, to college, got out of 96. So 96, 97, and then started freelancing for, a, for a, uh, a few years, got a few gigs here and there that paid the bills, the whole thing, and then finally hooked up with a couple of friends in 99 to start 37 Signals. So this idea that uh, you could be self-sufficient, you know, coming up as an only child, your parents throwing you out there at 13, said, go start making a little money, um, you getting these experiences in those early jobs, gave you this idea that you could really you could do this. And, and knowing as you had these experiences after college, going to work for this one person in San Diego and realizing like, I don't really like working for somebody else. Maybe I can do this on my own. And so you kind of always seem to always experience those things, but then go back to saying, and, and there's a, there's a kind of a quiet confidence here that I think remains today that says, I can do this. I can do this myself because I can control it and I can do it the way that I want to and I can put out um, a good quality product. Yeah, I, I mean, um, that 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 is the thread. I, I would say at every stage, though, it, there wasn't as much confidence. There was just like, I'm going to do this and see what happens. You know, when I first put the software out, uh, the, the music software up on AOL, I didn't think anyone would send me any money. I wasn't banking on it. And then people did and go, oh, okay. So they give you the confidence, essentially. I mean, I had enough, I would say, confidence to assume I could do something. I didn't know it would work, though. And then your customers give you the confidence, in a sense. And I think that just continued, that other, other people can give you confidence uh, in, in your abilities and what you can do. Um, and that just kind of grew. But it was never, I've never had expectations of, literally, I haven't really had expectations of anything. I, I'm not an expectations or goal-driven person. I, I have something I want to do. I try to do the best I can and I see what happens. And that leads from here to there to somewhere else, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, but the common thread is like, I, I try to make things that, that I want and that I need. So I don't have to imagine what other people want and other people need. And from that, you kind of realize that there's a lot of people like you out there, not billions maybe, but Hey, a hundred thousand who, who are willing to pay you for something, that's that's a wonderful business as long as you don't hire 7,000 people and have a massive payroll. Like if you keep your company relatively small and you find your niche and you do your work and you and you you do something that you really understand well, um, there's a good shot. I mean, again, the, the odds are against you always, but there's a good shot that maybe you'll find your place 
And as long as you keep your ambition in check, actually, and don't try to think like, I'm going to change the world and whatever. Some people can feel that way. I, I'm not that kind of person. But I can build something that, that's sustainable, that works, that um, is successful, is profitable, and, and it can stick around for for decades. That's that's kind of been my my general approach is to kind of figure it out as I go. As as you started to to get into the the writing and the expression, um, ended up writing these books. I think the first one, Shape Up, was more around product teams, and and then you really got into the work environment. Um, now, as you think about the company and where you guys are going, uh, from the standpoint of growing the product side, growing the audience, or being out there telling the story, is that just a marriage that's made in heaven? That's going to you know, be a, this coexistence forever. What do you, what do you, what's your long-term plan for 37 signals? I don't have long-term plans. Uh, I never really have. Um, it really is a figure it out as we go. Um, I, I think that the plan is to remain profitable. I mean, really it's about like business one-on-one. If we get the basics right, we can buy time. And with that time, we can decide what drives us, what we want to do more of. I mean, of course, we want to keep making the stuff that we make. We've got a few more products in mind. We're working on a couple new things. But but it's not like in three years, we want to be here or we want to have this many customers or we want to have this many employees. I, I'm not driven by those um, goalposts or those goals or numbers or anything like that. It's more about, are we enjoying the work that we're doing? Are we able to keep doing it? Are we profitable so that allows us to keep doing it? Um, are we sustainable as a business? Do we all want to show up for work most of the time? There's always bad days and you know bad weeks and whatever. But for the most part, do we want to be here? Do we like the people we work with? And do we think we have good ideas that, that the world needs? And that um, when I say the world, again, I don't mean like the whole world, but our little world. Uh, and if so, the answer is yes, we'll keep doing it. You know, that's just how it's always been. I mean, it's been that way since 99. And someone might hear that and go, wow, that sounds kind of flimsy and whatever. Well, you know, I don't think there's any... Um, truth in 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 planning for three or five years personally i, I think that that's a, a pipe dream and, and it's a big guess and it makes some people feel comfortable that they have they know where they're going to be in three or five years but i'd rather like get the next six weeks right and and then do another six weeks and another six weeks and another six weeks i feel like the 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 information the best information is the information that's right in front of you i don't know what three years are going to look like or five years are going to look like so that's why I've never been big into long-term planning. Um, my other thing about long-term planning or planning really in general is that a plan is what you thought and um, sort of figuring out as you go is really what you think. And I'd rather work on what I think than what I thought. So I, I like to stay thinking about the things versus like setting them in stone. This is where we're going because I thought of something, you know, two and a half years ago. It all makes sense, but I'm thinking about these 80 people on the team. Yep. And obviously, after a period of time, they get to understand this philosophy and, and most likely buy into the philosophy. But there's also got to be some challenges with that, with people that say, you know, if I don't know where the company is going and there aren't those goalposts out there, then I don't know what my own path is and what my own future is. And you're asking me just to come in every day and and sort of see if I'm happy with how things are, if I'm feeling good today or this week or this six weeks. Is that is that uncomfortable at all for people on the team? Um, I don't think so, but I'm sure there are some people who prefer sort of a more solidity. But I also think it's, you know, I think the best way to look at the future is to kind of look a little bit at the past here. Like we, we've been in business for almost 24 years now. 
So the trend is we like to stay in business. Like the trend is we like to be here. The trend is we know how to run a business for a long period of time. And so that's like most likely the, the future trend. You know, anything can happen, of course. But I, I've just seen so many companies with lots of money and lots of funding have all these grand plans. And then it's 18 months down the road, it all dries up and it's over. Like, I think most people recognize that um, when they work for a company that's been around for a couple decades, it's actually quite stable. Um, versus working at a company with grand plans but has no history. So I think people are, are certainly um, – I think I think reasonable people get that this is a pretty steady place to be. And the other thing is, is that we've had a number of people who've been here, uh, I think well over a dozen now, who, who've been here for more than 10 years. Um, and we've just celebrated a 14th-year anniversary and a 15th-year anniversary. Um, so people make careers here, and uh, I think that's – you know. That's the past, and that's hopefully going to be the future as well. But um, I don't know. I, I think I think what people really look at is, in my opinion, is like the last fifty days, the last sixty days. You know, like in the financial world, you've got this idea of the the moving average, which is typically fifty day or hundred day moving average. That really represents the truth more so than probably the, the far distant past and the far distant future. And so I think as long as people are really comfortable with where we're at and what we're doing. And the fact that like the 50 day moving average continues to to do well and people seem to be happy here, then the next 50 days will be great. And the next 50 days after that will be great. But there's no there's no predicting the future and there's no telling anyone that anything's for certain. But, uh, you know, past performance here, I think, is a pretty good measure of, of, of the future uh, plans of the company. There's no question that's going to make people a lot more comfortable. Um, what would you say, Jason, are the biggest current challenges um, you have today? Also, to kind of parlay that into, if we let's look at the nature of work and what's changed since COVID, and you've written about all of this, um, do you think we're in you know a constant state of change? Do you think that some of the stuff that we've seen, like hybrid and work and all that, is going to be permanent? But what do you see as the 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 future in the next few years for for business overall? Yeah, I mean, you know. Two years ago, it seemed like everyone was going to go remote and stay remote or hybrid or whatever. And right now, it seems like a lot of companies are still remote and, or hybrid, but a lot are pulling people back to the office. So I think you tend to regress to the mean. And I think what companies are used to doing, they're going to fall back into doing again. Um, some are going to have a lot of pressure from employees who want to work remotely. So there's going to be some battling around what companies end up allowing and, and whatever. We're a fully remote company. We've pretty much always been, although we've had an office in the past. We don't have one now, but even when we had an office, most people worked remotely. So we're very comfortable with that. So I'm a big believer in remote work, but I know it's not for every company. So I do think what's important is every company figures out who they are, what they want to do and what their point of view is. So that, But I think we're going to see a lot of turbulence there for a while as people still settle into this. I mean, people, companies weren't didn't decide to work remotely. They were forced to work remotely during during the pandemic. Yeah. So uh, it's it's hard, I think, to um, to sort of maintain a uh, a spirit of of doing something that you were forced to do versus chose to do. So I think things are going to settle out there, and we'll see how it how it plays out. Um, you know, um, I think the biggest challenge for us and for any company that's been around is is not to 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 get stale and to get complacent. Um, and there's been some of that here over the years. It's, it's, it's natural, but it's my job. I've really realized it's my job as the founder um, to inject risk into the business. Um, it's actually the one role that the founder 
or you know, the person who started it or owns it or whatever can do that most other people ultimately can't do because they're not really incentivized to throw things off balance a little bit. But it really is important for me and David to, to inject risk into the business, to push us to do new things, to challenge us to do new things, to push ourselves off balance, um, and to, to find new challenges. Otherwise, it can get um, routine. And, you know, we've got a great business here. So it's, it's easy just to kind of settle into, well, let's just kind of maintain the great business as it is. But as it is, and as it was, may not be how it has to be moving forward. Like the, the things we did over the last 20 years may not be the things we need to do over the next 20 years. So we have to be awake to that, but also not um, so enamored with the new things that we forget the the bread and butter that got us here too. So it's a very interesting, especially interesting time to, to try to find the right balance between doing the things that have worked well for us and making sure those things aren't stale, doing new things, but not you know forgetting the things that did work. Sometimes you have a tendency to like think that the old things didn't work and the new things are, or things are going in this direction. So we have to do all the new stuff, but a lot of fundamentals still work. Sharing, being fair, being thoughtful, putting out new ideas that other people aren't putting out, standing for things. These are things we've always been doing and we want to do more of that, but maybe there's new methods. Maybe we're doing it more on video now and less with writing, although we're still writing a lot. Like there's some changes there, but making sure we don't get stale, I think is, is the hardest thing for a, a company that's been around for a while. And running the business with the discipline you have in terms of profitability gives you the uh, freedom and runway to take that risk, knowing that not everything is going to work, but you're stable and you and you can take small risks here and there, or even you know a big swing now and again, and you're going to be okay. And that I'm sure provides comfort to the people that work in the business. Yeah, this is uh, a big Jason, part of. As you think about, actually, can I add something own, to that real quick? This is a, this is a big, yeah, of course. big, beautiful thing about profits, which. I don't think people recognize when they think of profits, they think of, of dollars, of course, I, I get all that, but really profits buy you time and time is a hard thing to buy. You don't get to buy it. There's, it's very hard to buy time in general, but profits do buy you time and they buy you uh, an opportunity to do something new. So if you like to build stuff, being profitable is the best way to build more stuff because you get to stick around. And if you have to rely on outside funding or some other financial obligations that another firm has to provide, you're always sort of on, on the brink because it's not up to you. But if you can figure out how to make a, an engine and, and a company that is profitable, you can live to try new things. And that's a really important part of, of I think, running a healthy business and also keeping something going for a long period of time. And like you said, having a bit of buffer there and having some margin there to play with. So you're not always on this razor thin place or 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 um, in the red where you just feel like you can't take any risks because you're just trying to make it even. So it is it is a, a wonderful thing to 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 strive for. I remember in my business, which you know I had for almost 30 years in the early days, we tried to raise money, nobody would give us any money, and so we just bootstrapped it. And then later years, we were creating a lot of profit, and everybody was throwing money at us, and we never took it, so never had any outside capital in the business. But managed to create a reputation such we were a premium provider and we're four or five times more profitable than our closest competitor. And that always gave us the freedom to to not only uh, grow and invest, but to, to continue to invest in the culture that we had. That's great. And so it's it's a it's a wonderful place to be. It's it's hard to get there. It's especially nowadays, you know, not everybody has the resources to to bootstrap. Um, but the longer you can do it and the discipline you can have around pricing and and doing something of quality that you could actually charge for to create that profit, 
put you in a wonderful position like you are right now. Um, Jason, if you think about your own leadership and you've obviously learned a lot over the years, is are there still lessons to be learned for you? Is there an aspect of leadership that you still feel like you need to improve upon? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've never run a business of this size. Um, so, you know, 80 people, it's a very different company than it was at 30 or, 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 or 20 or, or 60, you know, it really is. So I have a lot of learning to do. I struggle with it. I also struggle with how hands-on to be, how hands-off to be. When we were much smaller, I was really hands-on. I was like one of the people doing all the work. Now I'm not. And what is that like? Also, one of the things I struggle with is like some of my skills have atrophied. I, I'm no longer in the work as much. So it's actually in some ways harder for me to do some of that work, uh, but I'm doing other work now. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of get comfortable with the fact that uh, when you go from, you know, whatever to, to 80 or, or to for some companies, hundreds of people, like you're not going to do the same thing you used to do. And if you love to do that other thing, it can be really hard as a leader not to do that stuff anymore. So I've got to always continue to figure out how to balance that, how to, again, to, to inject enough risk, how to push hard enough, but not too hard. Um, and how to, you know, uh, allow other people to make more choices. All those things are things I'm still learning and, and struggle with from time to time and get better at, and then also get, get worse at, you can regress, you know, <laughs> I feel like I was maybe in some ways better when we were 65 and now 80 is like another leap. And now maybe I'm not as good at some things as I was before. So you just, you know, but, um, that's, that's the process. And, uh, um, also I think the other thing is, is really figuring out ultimately like what, what are you good at? Like what? what do you provide to the business that maybe no one else can or no one else is? And uh, that, that is something I think I've come to realize or recognize more over the past couple of years, which is this idea of, of, of risk and, uh, and, and vision and things that other people just wouldn't be comfortable introducing here because it's just, it's just not how it works typically, you know, um, and, and getting comfortable with the fact that that is my role. That is, a, it is a role. Like, What's interesting about the founder role is that founders typically are thought of as someone who starts it and then they move into some other role. But I actually think if you're still a founder and you're still in, in the business, you need to continue to act as the founder. It, it is actually a job description. It's not just a moment in time. And that's another thing that I've realized and I'm, I'm trying to you know further define. Yeah. And, that, and but part of that is having the humility to know that some of those skills will atrophy, that that as the company gets larger... Uh, it's going to be more challenging for you. You know, I think as entrepreneurs, sometimes we're wired to take the company to a, a certain point uh, and lead it in that way. And then we got to really look to whether it's bringing somebody else in um, or some sort of transition or just building that team uh, around you and not having an ego about it. That's the way to continue to grow successfully. Um, but it's being self-aware and it's clear that, that you are. I try um, to be. Wanna, Let's not say it's clear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, no, I try to be as best I can. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you for yeah, that. But we, yeah. you at least ask yourself these questions, yeah. which not everybody does and takes the time to do. So um, finally, Jason, I want to ask you what advice you would give to a younger person starting out. I, I, I read this article you wrote recently about this um, avalanche of advice that we get um, or have access to from the internet and social media and how to make sense of what to choose and how you uh, advise people to take advice because we're all selling something, we're all giving advice, but there's a way to ratchet that down in a way to get what's most valuable for you. But what what advice might you share and impart on um, a younger person going and having this entrepreneurial spirit, but not really knowing what direction to go? Yeah. Um, um, 
I, I think the most important thing is just to start making something. Um, I, I think until you get to something real, it's all very abstract. I've, I've, I've heard from a lot of entrepreneurs who keep looking for more mentors. They feel like they need more information, more perspective, more, more opinions. Um, they like to talk about these ideas that they have and, and it's all that's healthy to some degree, but then it becomes unhealthy. Um, there's nothing like making the real thing and getting the real thing out there to tell you the sort of the truth about the thing. Um, I don't really care how much you think about it. The market will tell you what it thinks of it. And that's kind of what mm -hmm. matters ultimately. So whatever it is, if you're sitting around and you have this idea and you're not sure if you're ready or you don't, you don't, you know, you need one more person's point of view, or I, I would just go and make the thing, get, get dirty and figure out how to make the thing. Um, that is the advice because the more time you have sort of under that tension, the better off you're going to be. Everything we do is, is practice. Um, and the, the more practice you have under your belt, like the better you're going to be at it. I mean, it would be, it'd be, it'd be awkward to ask someone to read 50 books and talk to 50 people about how to play the guitar. Nobody would think they'd be good at playing the guitar until they picked up the damn guitar and played the guitar for a while. Mm -hmm. Right. I think the same thing is true with business. You can read all the books and do all the things and go to the schools and whatever, 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 but you got to get out there and make something. That's how you really learn. You learn by doing so. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't read and pay attention to other people and ask questions and whatnot, but you've got to pair that with doing the thing. That's that's how you learn your craft. That's how you get better at what you need to, to get better at. So that's my suggestion is go make the damn thing and don't wait for it. Don't wait for someone else to give you permission to do it, let's just say. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And some of that can come from you know insecurity, lack of confidence, or uh not knowing which direction to go, but you can't just stand by that cold water and, and keep sticking your toe in. You got to jump. And and I'm a big believer in mentors and I've had and still have very important people in my life. But something I realized many years ago is that I might have an issue and go around to my group of four or five mentors and, and ask their advice. And where do I end up virtually every time? What my gut was before I started. And really all they did is gave me sort of validation for what I was thinking anyway. So why not take that jump and go in there and let the marketplace tell you um, what's acceptable and what's not? I think that's really great advice. Oh, I think, I think that's a great insight too, which is your, your gut should be good. Your gut, your gut's probably pretty good. Um, and it's okay to, again, it's okay to ask people. The other thing I would say about the mentorship, I agree with you, by the way, it's great to have great people in your life who you can ask and rely on, but you also don't need to know them. So there, there's a lot of people who um, have, I think, influenced me, but I've never met. I walk into a great store and they just have a really well merchandised store and they just take really good care of their products. They have really good, make really good choices. Everything's laid out beautifully. Customer service is great. And I learn from that. You know, I, I don't need to know who, who it was. I don't need to know the business owner's name. I don't ever need to talk to them, but I can see the choices they made and I can understand why they made those choices and I can be impressed by them and I can think about them. So you should be open to paying attention to, to if you're in business, to business, to stores, to all the interactions you have with all sorts of different companies. And that can teach you too, even if you don't know the people. So, uh, but anyway, all, ultimately, yeah, you got to develop your gut, trust your gut, be confident enough to do it. And to you got to go out and make something. You got to go start. So if you're like, I want to start a consulting company, helping, you know, Fortune 500, whatever, it's like, good for you. Go find a client. Go find some random client. I don't care who it is. Do a project first. Do something for them. That's how you get started. You don't get started with the business plan. You get started by doing the thing for one person or one client, 
and get in there and then you can start to do more and more and more. So that that's my suggestion. Yeah, I think it's great because we also are just anticipating problems that we don't even know yet exist. Very true. Until too. we put it out there and we're just planning, planning, planning. It's like, come on, put it out there, take that small risk and and you'll that'll be the best advice you ever got is that the feedback you get yes. from putting it out there. Well, uh, this has been great, Jason. I want to end with these five quick hit questions. Just name the first thing that comes to your mind, like the association game. Uh -huh. um, how about a name of a leader that you look up to? A uh, leader that I look up to, um, strangely right now, uh, Elon Musk. Strangely. Ah. Can I tell you why okay. or not? Yeah. I can yeah, tell I you like why because why. Um, a lot of people, of course, right now, and, and I, I, you know, I don't love everything he's doing, but I find him fascinating in his ability to just make things. And his, uh, he, he just, he moves quickly. And to see that happening out in public, when most companies are very slow and methodical, I find that to be inspiring, even if the decisions that he's making are seem like they're maybe bad decisions or weird decisions or unexplained decisions. Seeing someone make decisions in the wild is is, is very inspiring to me. Yeah, I think um, he's like the poster child for your philosophy, though, around um, jumping in and taking risks. Now, he can afford the risk, sure. so he's also lived by your philosophy that you grow profitable businesses and you can pretty much do whatever you want, right? Um, and so, yeah, you're saying it's not so much about every decision that he's made, but the fact that he makes those decisions and goes with his gut and, and lives with the the, uh, the consequences is is really pretty special. Yep. How about a, a, a book that influenced your leadership style? Um, leadership style. So there's a book called Maverick by a guy named Ricardo Semler. Um, I think it's out of print now, but um, it was a wonderful, wonderful book about this guy who took over his father's business in Brazil, big industrial equipment company, big, stodgy, slow, patriarchal, hierarchical business. And um, he he got it and he's like, I don't understand any of this. I'm going to redo this whole place uh, and focus on people and focus on process that makes sense. And I'm going to throw out the rule book. Or we're going to do things differently. It gave both Dave and I, a lot of confidence early on, um, to do things our own way. So that was, that was probably the most influential book I've ever read for on the business yeah. side. Great one. Uh, do you have an all time favorite movie? Uh, God, there's so many, but I, I would say I really enjoyed breakfast club, which kind of dates me, I suppose. But do you remember the breakfast club? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm older than you. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, great one. I just love um, that they were able to shoot a movie like that basically in one room and it was all yeah. dialogue and character development. And that is hard. I really appreciated that movie. It was a great movie. It's a great one. Um, how about a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? I'm not a big TV watcher. Um, but, uh, I, I would say that the, I like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. Great one. And lastly, is there something about you that many people don't know? Oh, probably a lot of things. Um, I don't want to tell them though, because then they'll know, right? <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta share one. Uh let's see. What's one thing people probably don't know about me that I would want to share? Um mm, I don't really know. It's a great question. Um I don't I don't know. It's weird to that's a great question, but I don't I don't know because I don't know what people know. Yeah. Um, well, hey, you, you're you're used to being so transparent anyway. So there's probably not a long list of things in, in that category. Well, I, yeah, I try to keep my private life pretty private, though. So I wonder if there's something hidden yeah. in there that I would share. But um, 
uh, okay. I would say that, that, uh, well, I mean, this isn't really a thing, but, um, um, I was, uh, let's see, what, what was I going to say about that? No, I don't, there's nothing really, actually, I was thinking about something about high school, but like, it's just it's so old, it doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that, actually. I'll take <laughs> yeah, it back to you right. on that one. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, hey, Jason, this has been wonderful. Let me reflect on a few of the things that I learned talking to you today. Your your story is really inspirational. I, I just love how um, that you're so focused and simple in your approach to business and life. And, and even as you, you know, developed your initial products. Uh, for 37 Signals, your philosophy is we're going to do simple things sim- simply, um, that it's built for a certain type of company. You're not trying to be everything to everyone. You know who your customer is, and you know who you're developing for, and you're going to make life uh, more simple for them. And that's just stayed with you this whole time. Um, you know, how it, it didn't take long, even when there were four of you, to to take the conversations that you were having internally not just about the business, but life and say, you know what, we're going to share this. We're going to share what we're thinking about and talk about it publicly. And that led to this, uh, you know, probably much earlier than most, this idea that thought leadership can can help grow your business. I know you didn't do it for that reason, but like you said, it became a good, a great marketing plan. It was unintentional. Um, but the idea that you can outteach the competition versus outspend the competition, uh, that's a, just a beautiful approach. Uh, especially nowadays, like the chef who uh, is not worried about the competition, just, you know, puts out the recipes. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there's more people out there cooking good food, um, why not do it that way? It's just a very comfortable and I think confident way uh, to do things. A lot of your sensibilities, I think, came from your parents who just pushed you out there as a as a young uh, only child at 13 years old that so you need to start working. You got those early jobs, but very early on, um, you were observant, um, as you are today, about what was going on around you and the relationships between people in the company. And while you may not have agreed with those owners or their approach, you also appreciated early on that what was most important was the relationship that you had with your boss or your supervisor. And if they were a good person that supported you, that you trusted, that that made you want to work hard for them and made you want to stick around. Um, interesting how you just, you know, kind of got into the software business because of your um, infatuation with design, with the the annual reports your dad would bring home or the houses that your mom was working in. So you sort of found what your passion was and and then started learning computer skills in, in, in a way and, you know, built that first little program for your own music collection and realized that people would take 20 bucks for it and said, hmm, I could actually make some money doing this. And um, you know, after school, got that first job as a web designer, didn't love working with your boss, but said, you know, I'm just going to go freelance and go back to Chicago. Um, and then, you know, hooked up with your your partners and in 99 started 37 Signals and really haven't haven't looked back. Um, I really like the fact that you that you have recognized about that the one of the most important things in business is just be profitable because that gives you the ability to take risks, to have choices, to build a great culture, to continue to invest in good products. And if you're just chasing revenue, if you're not profitable, you're facing extinction constantly. And you've been able to build this long-term company with that philosophy and you're continuing to do that. And, and that's allowing you to take these uh, risks going forward. 
very interesting approach that you're not a huge believer in long-term goals that you kind of figure it out as you, as you go again don't need the goalposts if we're profitable we're going to be able to do these things and hey look at what's happened over over these years um we've got a pretty good track record and um and and a recognition that even with what's happening in the last you know five years around work models and hybrid and remote and you know it's still in flux we don't know where it's going to go but we're going to stay laser focused on on doing what we do doing it well doing it profitably and um and we're going to continue to be able to to grow and your track record just shows that uh, the idea that you can't be complacent that the founder actually has a role to continue to be the founder to inject risks in the business to keep shaking things up to keep people uh really inspired about the, the work that they do because it can get stale if you just continue to do the same thing all the time and that how how profit really buys you that time um and yet you're still learning you're still growing you're learning that's different running a an 80 person company than a 30 person company and it will be different as a 120 person company um knowing what you're good at what you're not good at knowing that that some of your skills change but there is an evolving role for you and you're you're observing yourself and where that role is over time and that's really one of the most important things and you know lastly just the, the advice you have given to young people that just says um talk to people uh have those mentors have those advisors but just get started just put a product out put a service out there in the marketplace that's going to give you all the feedback that you need to keep going and you're going to um, be so close to to what the customer really wants that we can just get complacent ourselves by sitting back and waiting and and being on the sidelines just put that that product out there and uh and i think that's really great advice and um so i'm inspired by what you have done jason there's uh so much more to go i wish you um and your partner luck as you continue to grow and have an impact not only on the employees of your company but the uh, the business community overall. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Well, thank you. And I'm quite inspired by your note-taking ability. That was a quite a summary. Um, thank you. Thank you for writing that and, and for keeping those notes. Um, thanks for having me on. It was wonderful to chat. And uh, I, I feel like I still owe you an answer for the thing that I, I think people don't know about me. So we may have to write that one up separately. That's fine. We'll, we'll put it out there whenever you come up with it. Okay. Um, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at Small Giants Buzz. Until next time.